0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 22. We've just begun a series, just kind of skipping through some parts of the Old Testament, with the question in mind, what did the saints of old know of Christ? How did God reveal the Savior who was to come to them? And how did He call them to trust in the One who had not yet lived among men? We do that in part to show the Christ-centeredness of the Old Testament, that we might read the Old Testament with our eyes upon the Lord Jesus. But also, that we might recognize our unity with the saints in every age. The church did not begin with Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost. The church began in the garden when after man had sinned, God set upon him a demonstration of the promise of Christ, which man then received. And ever since, God has been gathering his people with their eyes upon Christ, setting him before them. And so we see in Genesis 22, a justly famous chapter that sets forth the Lord Jesus. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father... And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. (coughs) Brothers and sisters, beloved of the Lord our God, this passage that we've just read has always fascinated me. Because it's so very matter of fact. God says this, Abraham did that, here's Isaac, there's a ram, God is good, amen. So very clear, one step to the next. And what's always fascinated me is all the details that aren't provided. How did God speak such a message to Abraham in a way that would leave Abraham with no doubt that it was truly God speaking to him? And how did Abraham respond not the next day, but the first few minutes after he heard the message? What went through his mind? What did he tell his wife? And what was Isaac thinking as his father finished building the altar and then took a length of rope in his hand and said, Come here, son? All those little details get my mind churning. They really do. But God didn't include those details and He omitted them for a reason. He didn't want us to get distracted. He gave us what we need to know in order to get the message that we need to to receive from this passage. Because this passage, ultimately, it's not about the emotion of those who were involved. And it's not about, really, the relationship between Abraham and Isaac. What this passage is about is love. The love of God for His people... And the love His people are called to cultivate toward Him. What this passage is about ultimately is is the redeeming love of our God. And it was to reveal that redeeming love that God orchestrated these events. It was to emphasize His redeeming love that He commanded Moses to write the event in this way. And because God did allow this passage to unfold the way it does we can see, as God's people have seen for literally thousands of years, the redeeming love that God would pour out upon us in sending Jesus His Son on our behalf. So our theme this morning, as we look at this passage, is that God tests Abraham in order to reveal that redeeming love. God tests Abraham in order to reveal His redeeming love. And we begin to see that lesson as we see Abraham's obedient purpose in the first five verses. But first we find the context. Now it came to pass after these things, says our text. After God had called Abraham out of his ancestral land, after he had sojourned in the land of Canaan for some time, after Sarah bore Isaac in her old age, after Hagar and Ishmael had been sent away, dispossessed from the family. After all this had come to pass, the events of chapter 22 occur. So by this time, judging from that and judging also from the word used to describe Isaac in this passage, we can determine that Isaac was at least 12 years old, probably a bit older than that. Somewhere around 12, 15, 16 years old. Which means Abraham is 100 years older than that. He's 112, 115, 120 years old. And it's at that time that God calls out to Abraham saying, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Now that has to be a shock. I mean, consider, Isaac is the one for whom Abraham had waited all his life. A hundred years. He tried to take a shortcut and have a child by his wife's servant, Hagar. And God said, no, that's not the child of the promise. That's not the son. It was Isaac who was the one God had promised, it was through Isaac that all of God's promises would be fulfilled. And now God says, take Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. The text here doesn't leave us any wiggle room. He uses the word olah, which is an offering that was always consumed in its entirety on the altar in flames. How could God ask such a thing of any father, much less of Abraham with this child? But notice what immediately proceeds that command. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. God was testing Abraham. That's the word you would use if you had just gotten a new sword and you wanted to find out how strong and how sharp that sword was. You would take it out and you would would thrust and parry and chop and, and test that sword to see how good it was. This is also the word that, used, that was used to describe what God did to Israel during their time in the wilderness. He tested them to know whether they would be faithful to Him, whether they would trust Him, whether they would follow Him even in the midst of adversity. God was giving this command, was orchestrating these events in order to test the heart of His servant Abraham. Whom do you believe? Whom will you trust? How truly are you mine? But this is quite the test. Isaac was Abraham's beloved son. As I said, he's the one for whom he and Sarah waited and watched and prayed for decades. A good son who loved and obeyed his parents, but even more importantly, the son through whom God promised. All of these amazing things would come to pass, not just for Abraham, but for all the nations of the earth. Abraham loved Isaac deeply, passionately. However, in such love there is a temptation. How many parents set their children on a pedestal that is higher than any other pedestal in their life? They would do anything for that child. They would put no one before him, including God. But God wants his people to love him above all. Even more than your children, even more than your spouse. Abraham's fierce love for his son is in fact a temptation, a danger. So God tests Abraham to see whom he will love more. Will you love Isaac above all or will you love me? You see, that's what God was really commanding. Love me more than you love anyone else, including Isaac Obey me, even if it means the loss of your beloved son. Is your love for me that strong? Is your faith in me that true? Take careful note of how Abraham responds. It's not the response we might expect. We might expect some questioning. Maybe a bit of negotiating like Moses did when God called him to return to Egypt and deliver his people. We might expect some worry such as Jeremiah expresses when he receives the call to be a prophet. We might expect even a brief flight trying to get away from God's commands the way Jonah did. But instead, Abraham simply arises early in the morning and begins to prepare. He arises early because he understands what we try to teach our children. Delayed obedience is actually disobedience. He gets up early. He begins making preparations to follow God, to obey what he has commanded. He prepares a donkey. He splits the wood. He calls his servants. He gets Isaac ready. And then with Isaac at his side, he departs just as God commanded. Surely, my friends, this holds a beautiful lesson for us. Abraham recognized himself as God's servant, loving the Lord as his father. When God commanded something, when that command was revealed to him, he let nothing stand in the way. He didn't put out any excuses. He didn't delay. He immediately set everything aside and followed the Lord. So must we do. If our faith is real, we will reveal that in the way that we obey God. But Abraham's obedience was not any small thing. In fact, in that obedience, we see one of the chief lessons, the first chief lesson in this chapter. Look at verse 5. They get within sight of the place God has ordained, which was probably about 50 miles from where they had been. Quite a walk took them three days. They've come near enough that Abraham can leave his servants and the donkey behind. They can go by themselves from this point. And so he says to them, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. He and I will go to worship as God has commanded. Surely that had to weigh heavy on his heart, right? He understood what God had commanded him to do, and it was not an easy thing. I can imagine him wanting to walk slowly to delay the inevitable. But he prepares to go. The lad and I, the young man and I will go. But then look at what he says. And we will come back to you. We, both of us, will come back to you. Because Abraham believes, as we read in In Hebrews 11, verse 19, that God is able to restore the dead to life. And so if God makes me go through with what he has commanded, even so, we will return to you. And so he obeys perfectly with his eyes upon the Lord. And in that, we see the first major lesson of this text. Abraham's obedience. Now, throughout his life, we know that he wasn't perfect. He sinned just like we do. But in this instance, his obedience was an absolute obedience, a perfect obedience. In fact, God says at the end of this text, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, and then he gives him these beautiful promises of that which is to come. And then he clarifies once more, because you have obeyed my voice, See, that's the the calling that lays on all of mankind. We all know in our hearts, because of our consciences, what we should do and what we should not do. God calls us, calls all of mankind to obey Him with absolute perfection, without any doubt, without any fear, without any hesitation. Follow Him. Obey His commands. We fail. Every one of us, we fall short. We don't do it. But that's what God commands of us. And that's what God's people have always had to see in this. That God rewards perfect obedience. So if we can't obey Him perfectly, and and I think we all know we can't, then we are in trouble. We need help. We need deliverance. Abraham obeyed perfectly. That's what... That's what we all are called to do. But since we can't, we have to trust in Him. We have to put our faith in Him to restore us anyway. And that's the next thing we see. Christ obeyed perfectly. He submitted absolutely. And we see that In our second part of the text, starting in verse 6, with Isaac's confident submission. Look at verse 6. Abraham and Isaac are preparing to depart from the servants. The wood which has been on the donkey, Abraham lays on Isaac, probably tied up in a bundle. But still not a small amount of wood. And then Abraham himself, he takes up the, the fire, probably... In the form of coals carried in a censer. And he takes the knife in his hand. A large butcher knife. And then having prepared they departed. Notice the phrase. The two of them together. The Hebrew word rendered together there. Is a unique word that indicates unity. It's, it's not just that they were with each other. That they were beside each other. It's that they shared a unity of purpose a similar or a, a, a like goal. But then on the way, Isaac speaks to his father about something that's been bothering him. You see, Isaac, Isaac's a young man. He understands how these things work. He recognizes that if they're to worship the Lord, they're going to have to go to wherever dad says to go, and they're going to have to build an altar made out of uncut stones. They're going to lay the wood on top of it. But then, well, then they need to lay a sacrifice on that altar. We have the wood, we have the knife, we have the fire. But dad, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham's answer is pure faith. My son God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Not a lie, but an answer of confidence in God. As I said, in Hebrews 11, we're told the heart of Abraham, that he believed that if God made him go through with it, well, God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Faith in the Lord. But now listen, Isaac is a teenager. He's not a kid. He understands how these things work. And so hearing that, surely he has a glimpse of what dad means. Because he is Isaac, the one whom God has provided. He is Isaac, the one who belongs entirely to God. And they're heading to the top of Moriah, out in the wilderness, in a place where sheep don't just roam, generally speaking. And when they do, you don't catch them by foot. Isaac understands what God is saying, but what's beautiful is having been given this answer we read in verse 8 just as we read in verse 6 so the two of them went together same word despite hearing what his father said Isaac was still united absolutely one in purpose with his father brothers and sisters this is the image of Christ Here we see the trusting Son who perceives He must become the sacrifice. But He doesn't protest, He doesn't flee because He displays the One who will submit. Not just to His earthly Father but to His heavenly Father whose way is always right. What a powerful image of Christ both for Israel of old and for us. In fact, everything about this text speaks of Christ. Look, they get to the mountaintop. Moriah, which, by the way, one day would become Jerusalem and specifically the Temple Mount. And they get there. They build their altar. They lay the wood on top. And then comes the test. Test. If this was a regular sacrifice, Abraham knows exactly what to do. He would kill it quickly and efficiently. He would drain the blood from it. He would take the skin off. He would cut it into pieces and arrange it on the altar, having first washed the meat. But this is no lamb, is it? So Abraham, obeying God, yet deeply loving his son, opts simply to bind his son with a rope. He lays the young man atop the altar. And then he reaches out his hand for the knife. Now the question, before we go farther, how did Isaac respond? The text doesn't tell us, does it? But that in itself is telling. Because it has recorded for us faithfully the question Isaac had. The response Isaac gave. And here the silence therefore is telling because it shows us that he didn't resist. He didn't try to flee. He didn't protest. He submitted. Both to his father before him and to his heavenly father above. Folks, this is Christ. Everything about this image of Isaac laying on the altar proclaims Christ. The father brings his son, the only son Whom He deeply loves. And we hear God declare in Luke chapter 3. You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. God looking down upon Jesus in His baptism. And we hear Jesus Himself say in John 3 verse 16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Son is declared to be a sacrifice, pleasing to the Father. Yet He doesn't complain, He doesn't even cry out. Instead, as the prophet Isaiah declares, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. Even when made to carry the wood of the sacrifice that He was to become, the wood of the altar fire for Isaac, the wood of the cross for Christ. Even as death loomed, he was united in purpose with his Father who led him there. And we think of Jesus' prayer on Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Folks, this young man lying upon the altar, awaiting His own death. This is an image of Christ submitting on our behalf. And it is the one whom Isaac portrays in whom God's people have always and must always trust. This is what inspired the faith of God's people for generations. They looked to the image of Isaac and they saw the one who would die for them. They saw Isaac's quiet submission, his willingness to die, his absolute obedience. And they saw the obedience they had never managed. The righteousness that they must have imputed to them. And they trusted in Christ even as we, brothers and sisters, must trust in Jesus today. We must trust in Him whose sacrifice gives us life, whose submission brings us to the Lord our God. And if we do, no one can take peace from us ever. Well, that brings us to our third point. And our third and fourth points are very brief, but they're very important. The third point is important because, as beautiful an image of Christ as Isaac was, he wasn't Jesus. See, Isaac was deficient. He was fully man, but he was not fully God. He couldn't bear the full weight of God's wrath. And he was a righteous young man, but he was not a perfectly righteous young man. Isaac's a beautiful image of Christ in his submission, but more is needed. And that more is portrayed to us in the ram's life-giving substitution. Look at verses 10 through 12. In many ways, the climax of this story. Abraham reaches out his hand, takes the knife to slay his son. And suddenly a voice booms out, Abraham! Abraham! Recognizing the voice of God, he says, here I am. And the Lord says, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham has passed the test. The heart that would bind the beloved son is the heart that is surrendered to God. The hand that would take the knife is willing to use that knife in obedience to God. Abraham's faith is demonstrated. God loves The faith of His people. He loves to recognize in us that we put no one else before Him. That we obey Him even when it hurts. But our faith is not enough. Someone must still pay the price for our disobedience. Someone still must suffer on our behalf. And so we read, Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Folks, this is the grace of our God. The sacrifice that would take Isaac's place, provided perfectly in, in time, in location, in form. Abraham catches the ram, kills it, prepares it for the sacrifice. It takes the place of Isaac upon the wood of the altar. Again, brothers and sisters, is this not a beautiful image of our Savior? And so Abraham commemorates that gift in verse 14. He called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it's still said this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Brothers and sisters, this too is a call to faith in the Lamb. Who was wounded for our transgressions, was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him and by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Jesus alone could provide perfectly to remove the wrath of God from us. And if He could provide perfectly for that Then also all of the lesser things we need. The food and shelter. The health and strength. The escape we need when the enemy afflicts us. The gifts we need when our loved ones need us to serve them. All that we need Jesus is able to give us. And he demonstrated that by being the ram. By being the sacrifice who took our place. And then... Having demonstrated Jesus' substitutionary atonement for us, He gives us promises that exceed anything this world can provide. That's the encouragement we find at the conclusion of our text. And in those final verses we find our last point as we consider God's generous promise. God speaks here in a way that's calculated to give assurance The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Now strictly speaking, an oath is unnecessary for God. First of all, because God is the the source and the measure of all truth. What God says necessarily is true. But also because God never changes. So if God has said it, which He's already said these things before, it's absolutely certain and assured For all time. But he speaks a vow to give Abraham absolute assurance. And to give us absolute assurance. That we might never doubt. And the blessing he promises is threefold. First of all he promises offspring. Blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants. As the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. As though it was insufficient that Abraham would become... A father in his hundredth year. And that God would spare his son from the altar at the last moment. Now God assures him, your eventual offspring will be absolutely uncountable for their multitude. And then he says, your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. To Possess the gate of their enemies. That says you've gained control of their city. That means that you have absolute dominion over them. You've conquered them for once and for all. And then verse 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now actually, most of this passage is beautifully rendered. But that one, the verb could be refined a little bit. Because the verb in the Hebrews, in a fairly unusual form, that's reflexive, that falls back upon the one who's acting. A more literal rendering would be, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves. In other words, when the world recognizes how richly and perfectly blessed Abraham and his seed are, They will long for that which they've been given, and they will seek after the God who has blessed them so. And in Him they will bless themselves. Folks, we need to recognize these promises, they're the promises Jesus came to fulfill. Everything involved in these promises speak of Christ. He is the one who came to crush the enemy, Satan and all that Satan wrought. That's why Jesus began his ministry going out in the wilderness to face off against the temptations of Satan. It's why he assured us in Matthew 16 verse 18 that upon the confession of him as the Christ, God's eternal kingdom would be built and the gates of Hades itself would not prevail against it. In Christ, in the seed of Abraham, victory against all our enemies is assured. Moreover, he multiplies the offspring of Abraham incalculably. Because not only did God give Abraham many, many, many descendants of the flesh, but Romans 4 tells us all who follow in the footsteps of Abraham's faith have become his true descendants Which means that Abraham now has spiritual descendants from every land, from every family, from every continent of this world. Truly already, his descendants are like the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. And in him the nations bless themselves. From China and Korea, Iran and Turkey, Africa and Europe, North and South America alike. In every land, God is empowering eyes to see that there is true blessing only in Christ, only in the seed of Abraham. And therefore, led by the Spirit of God, they turn to Him, they embrace Him, they love Him wholeheartedly. Beloved, we must be among them, blessing ourselves by trusting in Abraham's greater son, Jesus. In Him alone, there is confident hope for life eternal. Therefore, we must trust Him with the sure and steadfast Faith of Abraham. And if we do. We can be absolutely confident. We have life abundant. We have victory. And no one. No one shall snatch us from his hand. To Jesus our Savior be all the glory. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our Heavenly Father. Thank you for bringing us to yourself. And giving us such such wonderful assurance that in Christ we have life eternal and all that we shall ever need. Father, we ask that You would enable us to trust Jesus wholeheartedly and continuously. And Father, we ask that You would cause the nations to turn themselves to Christ by the power of Your Holy Spirit receiving the gospel that Your church proclaims that multitudes more might come to know life and might live their lives to bless you. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.